Well, uh, you know, it was really good that uh, Ed talked about listening to sermons, because this is going to be one of those sermons that you need to apply what he said. Um, This is going to be like, you know, taking a drink from a fire hose or putting some sugar in your coffee with a dump truck. Um, So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we come before you now needing your wisdom, needing your grace to understand your word. Father, um, the prophetic portions of Scripture are complex, interrelated, spread out, compressed. Father, they're just uh, difficult for us to grasp uh, just the, the times and the epics and the events which you have declared will take place in the future. I pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we hear you speak to us through many texts that we would come away at least with the general understanding of the tribulation and what it's going to be like. And Father, that we would then um, act uh, in such a way that would reflect our faith and belief that these things are true and will come to pass maybe even shortly in the lifetimes of those living today. Father, we just ask again that you would use your word to make us more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, You know, if you think, if you talk to people, what are you waiting for? Um, Some people will talk about, um, you know, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm waiting for Christmas or whatever. Uh, uh, Some very spiritual people might say, man, I'm waiting to be translated, glorified, you know, caught up to be with the Lord in the air, man, to get out of here. And other people say, well, I'm waiting uh, for the tribulation. I'm waiting to see the Antichrist and to note what's going to happen. Because, you know, some believe uh, the tribulation has already happened, which is Quite amazing if you read the book of Revelation and the many texts which speak of the tribulation. To really do so, you think, well, how do you do that? Well, it's a trick. Uh, Basically, you do it this way. You say, well, if it's prophecy, it's metaphor. And when you say metaphor, it's kind of like a laser gun that you just vaporize the text with. You know, metaphor has is based on literal meaning. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the door, we start with the literal meaning. What is a door like? And how is Jesus like a literal door? And what is bread like? And what does it do for us? And how is Jesus like a literal bread? So even if something is a metaphor, the literal meaning instructs us on something spiritual. So when you say something is metaphor, it has to be metaphor of something else. Well, the problem is, is those who believe a prophecy, the book of Revelation is metaphor, oftentimes just use it as an excuse to just vaporize the text. All those details, all those numbers, all those people, all those events, all those plagues have to be, even if they're metaphor, have to be metaphor of something, not nothing. If you reject the literal meaning of God's word, then what happens is it's just a free-for-all. Everybody gets to interpret it however they want. You know, if I say something like, um, you know, John picked up a pedible. Now, that's metaphor. So everybody write it down and tell me what that means. 
See, now everybody writes down something different. Why? Because now the meaning of it, having rejected the literal meaning, you are, it's up to your imagination. And that's why we don't just say things are metaphor unless there is a clear reason in the text. And even if there is, we still understand that metaphorical meaning based off of literal words. So if you come to a prophecy with this idea that what God says he means and that if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, then it drives you to the conclusion that the tribulation is yet future. And that then gives rise to a lot of different views about the end times. Some people believe that the church will be raptured halfway through the tribulation. The tribulation is that seven year period of time preceding Jesus's second coming to earth. They say, yeah, we'll go through, we'll, we'll see who the Antichrist is. Yeah, we'll be telling people that's the Antichrist. And then right in the middle of the tribulation, we'll, we'll be raptured. We'll be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Others say, oh, we'll make it about three quarters of the way through. And then right before it gets really nasty, then we'll be taken up. Others say, no, we'll go all the way through and we'll see the whole thing and God will miraculously preserve us and then we'll be caught up to be with the Lord in the air forever but immediately come down to earth with Jesus. We teach that we will be caught up before that seven-year period. Why? Because we believe that God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 Uh, a context about the second coming and the judgment that will occur before the second coming, the day of the Lord. And so we believe that will happen. We will be, for instance, like Enoch, who was translated into heaven before God sent the global flood of judgment upon the earth. Now, just imagine, though, if you were, you know, let's just say we're wrong. And we do have to go through the tribulation. Imagine that with all we know. We would say, hey, there's the Antichrist. Hey, he's making a covenant for seven years with Israel. Hey, look at he, he, he's everybody's trusting him as the world ruler. Hey, he's bringing peace about on earth. Hey, he just went into the temple. Hey, the temple got rebuilt. Hey, he committed the abomination of desolation. Hey, he received a mortal woman that wounded his head and then was healed. And hey, look at those two witnesses. And hey, they're bringing judgments on the earth. And hey, they kill him. And look at them. I saw it on YouTube. They're lying in the streets and ascended into heaven. You know, I mean, that's what we'd be doing for seven years. Yeah, and look at that. And look at that. Why? Because we know the scriptures. We know the future. And just as all those prophecies in the Old Testament you know, about Jesus's first coming came true literally. So we can expect the rest of them to come true literally, not metaphorically. And so we teach that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and that the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And yet there are billions of people who don't know Christ, right? There are billions of people who who are living in the world today who don't know Jesus. Lots of Jews 
who don't know Jesus. They don't love Christ. They don't serve Christ. They don't bear testimony or share the gospel of Christ or honor, honor Christ with their lives. Some of them do go to church, but so do Mormons and Jehovah Witness and Christian science gather on a regular basis. There are people in Bible-believing churches who, who don't know Jesus. People here, I'm sure, who don't know Jesus. And let's say the rapture did happen next Saturday night and you come to church on Sunday morning and you think, the doors are locked. The lights are out. Where's the coffee table and donuts? <laughs> and you're all standing there in the parking lot thinking, where is everybody? I would hope that you would drop on your knees and get right with the Lord right then and start studying the word of God diligently because you are going to enter into a time of scary, scary judgment on the whole earth. And this is really our subject for today, the tribulation. Jesus has finished his public ministry. He's left. It's probably Tuesday early evening or Wednesday early evening. He's left. He's gone out the Golden Gate, traveled down the Kidron. He's wound his way up um, the the Mount of Olives. We know from uh, later on in our text where he uh, says in verse 37 of Luke 21, that now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at the evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called the Olivet, called Olivet, which is actually going the other side of the mountain, which is Bethany, um, and stay there. But apparently now he's gone up there, get, taking a rest about halfway up the mountain or so, and uh, it's beautiful. The sun is setting. And they see all the white marble and all the gold that has gilded the temple, this incredible temple mount complex, one of the wonders of the world. And the disciples go, man, it's beautiful. And Jesus says, well, not one stone is going to be left upon another and all of it will be torn down. This then prompts a few of them to come up to Jesus privately and they ask Jesus three questions of which Luke only records two. But if you look at the parallel text in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, you discover they ask these three questions. One, when will these things be? Secondly, what will be the sign of your coming in glory And what will be the sign to the end of the age? Now, we've talked about this before, and you need to understand from their perspective what they're thinking. Jesus has just told them the whole temple mount is going to be torn down, every single stone of it. They're thinking in their mind, well, I guess that signals your reign as king upon the earth. So what they're thinking is temples destroyed, Jesus establishes his kingdom. And this is what most Jews understood. They thought the Messiah would come, he would gain an army, he would defeat Rome, he would establish his kingdom, and let's get on with it. This is really one of the reasons why the Jews rejected Jesus, because Jesus wasn't fulfilling the beat-up Rome part. And what they didn't understand, and though Jesus had told his disciples, they are, he actually, the, we saw the text where it says, 
God was hiding the truth from them. He kept the truth for a while from them. They didn't quite understand the Messiah had to come the first time to die for the sins of the world and then come a second time in glory. And they really knew nothing of the church age in between. This time when God would, for a time, set aside Israel to bring many Gentiles into the kingdom and to enjoy the benefits of the covenant made to Abraham. And so they're clueless of this. Now, when they ask the question, you know, when's the temple going to be destroyed? When do you come back in glory? What are the signs that are going to bring all this about? They're thinking in their mind that all of these things are going to be happening in tight sequence. But when Jesus answers, he gives an answer that spans both from their time, specifically 70 AD, all the way to Jesus' second coming, which is still in the future after the tribulation. Of course, they don't really understand this, but we do. They understand it later, but we know these things. And that's what we need to keep in mind as we look at this text. So when Jesus answers their question, they're clueless of this huge church age in which we live, which started at Pentecost and, of course, will end when the church is caught up to be with the Lord in the air. As First Thessalonians 4 What is it? 13 through 18 tell us. So these events that Jesus is speaking of happened. Many of them happened in 70 AD. Some of the things Jesus mentions happened only in 70 AD. Some of them happened both in 70 AD and in the future tribulation. And some of them happened only in the tribulation. For instance, every stone being torn down so not one is left happens in 70 AD. In both cases, Jerusalem is surrounded in with armies. 70 AD, the future tribulation. But the abomination of desolation only happens in the tribulation. So Jesus is actually giving them, answering their question, and since the similarities between the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the tribulation are so similar, they match for both. Our job then is to try and figure out which. Now we have spent considerable time, both in Luke 17 and already in Luke 21, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So this morning, we're not even going to go there. I'm not going to go there and spend that much time. I'm just going to get into the text and we're going to talk about the tribulation specifically. I'll allude to 70 AD a little bit, but we're going to focus on the tribulation. Now, I just want you to know uh, if you're going to try and apply Ed's little sermonette about listening to sermons, um, this is going to be a mind bender. Now, if you've studied prophecy a lot, you'll be going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Otherwise, you might be sitting there with your head tilted like, what? Um, There's going to be a lot of details and a lot of facts. See, I can just tell you the truth and then, uh, but the problem is when you do that, if I say, yeah, this is, uh, well, this is going to happen three and a half years in the tribulation, then you say, how do I know? And then I have to take you another passage. And then, then you say, well, how do you know that? Then I take you to another passage. And you say, well, how do you know that? And I take you to another passage. So see, I could just tell you the truth, but that wouldn't be satisfying. But then if I try to satisfy you, it's too much information. And so I'm going to give you too much information. (laughs) And then as we continue to move through Luke 21, (coughs) we'll look at some of the other parts in a little bit more clarity. So uh, a little bit slower. So this morning, it's just the dump truck of the tribulation. And uh, we're actually going to do an exposition within an exposition. 
But in order to understand the text, what I want to do is I want to read to you Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 33, although we'll only be looking at verses 20 through 24, so you can kind of see the broader context here. So follow along in your Bibles as I read. Jesus is speaking, Luke's recording. Verse 20, Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that the things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive to all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations in perplexity and the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heaven will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable, behold, the fig tree and all of its, uh, behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So also when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place place heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away so jesus now is speaking of events that yes overlap between 70 a.d and some of the events that happen the tribulation but it's very clear as he moves through that the tribulation that is that seven year period of time before jesus comes back to earth are in view we'll see this explicitly but from this text i just want to point out Four certainties about the tribulation to give you confidence that Jesus does know the future, that what was promised will come to pass just as he said it would be, and so you can live your lives accordingly today. First, the sign of Jerusalem's destruction. Look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. We already talked about this in 70 AD when Titus surrounded Jerusalem. We want to now consider what about the tribulation? Does this happen during the tribulation? Yes, it does. As a matter of fact, when you read the parallel text in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, it says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Matthew adds for clarification that it is the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So right now, this is what we're learning. That when it talks about desolation in our text, Luke 21, 20, the parallel texts tell us it's the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. We know for certain that happens during the future tribulation. And now if you're sitting there thinking, well, what is this whole abomination of desolation thing? 
Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And we will figure out about the abomination of desolation which occurs in what is often referred to as Daniel's 70th week. Now, don't let all these details just kind of make your brain go into a fog. You know, if you can't follow and you can't flip back and forth, just write down the references. Just try to soak it up. Um, but there's a lot of details here that really need to be explained. And so we're just going to kind of just dump it on you. And then we'll, we'll, we'll be able to come back and deal with it in pieces. And hopefully some of it will silk in. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27... We have what are called Daniel's 70 weeks. The the text first begins by saying 70 sevens or 70 units of sevens, literally, have been decreed for, for the Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Now, later on, it, it refers to these as weeks. There are weeks of years. Weeks of years. How do we know for certain that Daniel is talking about weeks of years? Again, we could go into a lot of detail, but this is the bottom line. Because other texts do this, because history affirms it, because it's clear from the last week, the 70th week, that it's seven years. Those are the reasons, the primary reasons. Daniel's being told about the future by the angel Gabriel. Look at verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Notice it's not about the Gentiles. We're talking about the Jews. When you want to learn about the Gentiles in the book of Daniel, you look at Daniel chapter two through six. That's when Daniel has all these visions to describe the huge kingdoms, the Gentile movements leading up to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ. Then in chapter 7 through 12, we have God's prophetic plan for Israel. This is in that section. So we're talking about the Jews, your people and your city that is Jerusalem, the Jews and Jerusalem. Notice what is going to happen during the 70 weeks. One, to finish transgression. Two, to make an end of sin. Three, to make atonement for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And six, to anoint the most holy place. So you say, okay, in this, the 70 weeks of years are going to happen all of these things. But what do these things mean? Well, let's talk about them. The first two phrases, to finish up transgression and to make an end of sin, describe a radical removal of sin from Israel. Now, that hasn't happened yet. It isn't happening today. It won't happen during the tribulation. But at the end of the tribulation, what happens? Well, all the Jews who don't know Christ are killed and executed so that only believing Jews enter into the thousand year reign of Christ, only believing Jews. And that is a radical removal of sin. That's what that's talking about. So (coughs) by the time these 70 weeks are finished, that will come to pass. This is described in a lot of places. I'm just going to give you token texts to, you can jot down if you want to look at these later. Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, speaking of the events immediately preceding the second coming of Christ, says, quote, It will come about in the land, declares the Lord, the two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Speaking of the Jews, two-thirds of the Jews will be cut off and perish. A third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. 
They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So we're talking about believing Jews. So however many Jews are alive during the tribulation and living in or near Jerusalem, two thirds will be cut off and or killed and a third will actually be saved and enter into the kingdom as believing Jews. There you have it. Not only that, we come to the next phrase to make atonement for iniquity. You're thinking, okay, to make atonement for iniquity, verse 24 there in Daniel 9. What's that? Obviously, that is a reference to Christ, who being the Lamb of God makes that once for all sacrifice for sins. The phrase to bring in everlasting righteousness speaks of the kingdom of Christ, which is established at his second coming, which happens, of course, at the end of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, as we shall see. Are you following this? It's people going. Um. You'll, you'll get it. It'll, it'll soak in some. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Listen to the tape a whole bunch of times or the CD. Um, download it and listen to your iPod till next week or whatever. The phrase to bring in everlasting righteousness speaks of the establishment of Christ's kingdom. That happens after Jesus returns. Jeremiah 33 verses 14 through 16, for instance speaks of this when it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will raise, uh, I will cause a righteous branch of David, guess who that is, to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Now you have Jesus executing justice and righteousness on the earth. We're talking about the kingdom. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she, Jerusalem, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There you have it. That's just one example of the everlasting righteousness established when Christ rules over the earth. The phrase to seal up vision and prophecy is a reference to the fulfillment, the literal fulfillment, by the way, of all that God is telling Daniel. Finally, the phrase to anoint the most holy place is a reference to the fourth temple built during the millennial or thousand year reign of Christ after his second coming. The temple will be rebuilt again. There are four temples the scripture speaks of. Here they are. There's the first temple built by Solomon, which of course was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when the people of Israel were taken captive to Babylon. They then returned 70 years later, and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the city and the temple were rebuilt. That is the second temple. That second temple had a radical upgrade and remodel by Herod. That is the one that the disciples are marveling at as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is telling them about the tribulation. That second temple, of course, was totally dismantled and destroyed by Titus and his army in 70 A.D., we know that in the tribulation, which is future to us, the seven years preceding Jesus' coming, that the Antichrist will enter into the temple and commit the abomination of desolation. This tells us that the temple will be rebuilt again during the tribulation, either on top of or next to the Dome of the Rock. The on top of scares the Muslims. They like the Dome of the Rock. Um, 
but it will be built again. Then we also know that there will be a fourth temple. That is the temple that exists during the thousand year reign of Christ. And so there will be those four temples. So to the phrase to anoint the most holy place is a reference to finally establishing of that final temple, which will exist when Christ reigns on earth. So we have that. Now look down at verse 25 of Daniel 9. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and it will be built again with a plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now, if you haven't, you know, studied this, that verse probably sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. I mean, you just look at it and go, what? Okay, well, let's just take this apart very slowly. I'll speak slow. No, not that slow, but I'll speak slow. Notice you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Now just stop there. Daniel right now is in captivity with all the Jews. He's receiving this prophecy. Jerusalem is totally obliterated. The angel Gabriel is telling Daniel that their decree is going to be issued and that they are to discern, figure out that from whenever that current decree is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in Daniel's time, when they came back from captivity during Ezra and Nehemiah's time, they are the, that's when it happened from that decree until the Messiah, the Prince Jesus, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, seven plus 62 equals 69. Yeah. Yeah. I do the math. Okay. And it's going to be built again. The, the Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress, which we know happened during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah it was rebuilt and the, you know, sand Bellet and the other Samaritan crew were trying to prevent them from rebuilding Jerusalem and make it a fortified city, but it happened anyways. And so What happens is there's going to be seven weeks and then plus these 62 weeks, which equals 69. Daniel 9.25 towards the end says it will be built again and it was built again. That's called, that's the second temple. Okay. Several decrees were given concerning the Jews and their return from captivity. So you have to decide which decree is, is, is he talking about? Because it says you are to discern that is figure out which one it is. Cyrus, of course, gave the first decree. When the Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians, Cyrus then gave a decree for Jerusalem to return from captivity. As a matter of fact, Isaiah speaks of that in Isaiah chapter 45. Cyrus's decree happened in 536 BC. Read about it in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Later, Artaxerxes gave a decree in 5 or 458 BC. That's mentioned in Ezra chapter 7, verse 8 and verse 13. But the decree that matches Daniel 9, 25, after you discern it for a while, is the decree of Artaxerxes Longamanus issued in 445 BC, as recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. 
of which Nehemiah 2.1 tells us happened in the month of Nisan, which is the Jewish month that encompasses March and part of March and April uh, in our calendar. Now you might wonder, man, does, I mean, do these calculations work out? That's like asking because God know what he's talking about. Sir Robert Anderson calculated the date of Christ's death by this prophecy with some pretty incredible precision. He says, we know that Jesus started his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now, whenever you have a text like that, it's like, oh yeah, it's like an anchor point. We know that from Luke chapter three, verses one and two and verse 21 and verse 33. We, all we have to do is if, okay, if Jesus starts his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius, then all we have to do is figure out when, when Tiberius started to reign. Tiberius started to reign August 19th, AD 14. So if you add 15 years to that, it brings you to AD 29. Now we know that Jesus dies at Passover week, right? We've been studying that. And if you go through the gospels, you know that Jesus, Jesus in his ministry went through four Passovers. So that means if the first Passover Jesus ministry, which you know was Nisan, April, AD 29, the gospel tells us he dies on the fourth Passover. That means When he entered Jerusalem after he went to Jericho and blind Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus came out of the Jordan Rift and he came into Jerusalem again, it was on April 6th, AD 32. You get this by comparing John 11.55 through 12.1 and Matthew 21.1 through 9. When you figure that the days that elapsed between March 14th 445 BC in April 6, 32 AD, you get seven times 69 years or 483 years or 173,880 days. I mean, that's easy, right? Now, if you say, well, what, well how do you, now, well, wait a second here. So, so you, you multiply seven times 69 because there's 69 weeks, right? So you have 69 weeks of years. And then since there's, Seven days in a week, seven times 69. Okay, I got that. That's 483 years. Okay, I got that. And then you multiply times 483 years times, or, uh, times 360. You say, well, why don't we use 365? Well, we could, but the Jews use 360. How do you know that? Another rabbit trail into Revelation 12, for example. Um, we know that the three and a half years are 1,260 days. That tells us that the Jews reckoned in these prophetic years 360. Uh, Years are actually exactly 365 and a quarter. But everybody has their way of dealing with that quarter day or those extra days. So you can figure it out using the 365 day calendar if you want. You just have to adjust for leap years. You have to adjust for the fact that there's no zero year. Um, and you have to um, include the where the Jews kind of captured, where we do leap years, the Jews captured it during the month of Nisan, and it still gives you 173,880 days, which is 483 years, which is seven times 69 years, which is those first weeks of Daniel leading up to the 70th week. 
So the Messiah was cut off after these 69 weeks, exactly, literally, just as Daniel said, almost like God knows the future. So look at Daniel 9, 26. Notice then after the 62 weeks, and I want you to notice it says after the 62. So we're after the 62, which is after the seven. So after the 69, because there's seven weeks, 62 weeks. So 69 so far after the 62 or 69 weeks, if you combine them all together, what happens? The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That means Jesus. What? He dies. He dies. So we've got that. And look at the middle of verse 26. Now we are before uh, Jesus dies before the 70th week, but after the 62 weeks. So the 62 weeks are completed. Jesus dies. And then the middle of verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Notice this desolation term. That's like right from our text too. See, what is the desolation? We're getting there. But I want you to notice here that, yes, <clears throat> Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. We know that. We've talked about it. And now this entire church age has gone by where the Gentiles have, in some respect, trampled underfoot Jerusalem. You say, well, isn't you know, Israel a nation? Yeah, but who's, who's on top of the Temple Mount? The Jews? The Gentiles, pagans, idolaters. And of course, that's what Luke 21, 24 affirms. We'll get there in a minute too. So when we get to the final week, the tribulation, the last of the sevens, the 70th week, 69 have gone by, the Messiah has been cut off, the church age we're in right now. And of course, it doesn't mention that because that doesn't primarily relate to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Then we look at verse 27 of Daniel 9, and he, that is this man who arises, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is the many Jews for one week. Um, But even the Gentiles, as you study prophecy, but we're talking about Jews here. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So you're thinking, okay, there's going to be a guy. He's going to talk to the Jews. He's going to make a covenant with them for seven years. In the middle of the week, that is three and a half years in, he's going to break the covenant and put an end to sacrifice, which tells us that in the tribulation, that future week, halfway through the week, the Antichrist breaks the covenant And he puts an end to sacrifice, which means there's a temple. That's how we know there has to be a third temple built during the tribulation. So Gabriel tells Daniel halfway through the covenant's broken. And this antichrist or man of lawlessness, the beast of revelation breaks the covenant and puts an end. He then commits the abomination of desolation, breaking the covenant. Then a little into verse 27, we read, And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out 
on the one who makes desolate. In other words, there is this abomination of desolation. That's when the Antichrist stands in the temple, declares himself to be God, and it just abominates the temple. The temple, And that is the one that is decreed. It will happen until eventually the Antichrist is destroyed at the end of the tribulation. This is the abomination of desolation, which... Matthew 24 and Mark 13, the parallel text to our text in Luke 21, refer to. And that's how we know there will be a third temple. Look over at Daniel chapter 11. Here again, all these movements of these kings and the nations relating to Israel are being discussed. If you look at Daniel 11:31, you read this. <clears throat> Again, speaking of the abomination of desolation committed by the Antichrist, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. That's exactly what he just said in 927. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Both Matthew 24, 15 and Mark 13, 14 tell us that this is the reason why the Jews during the tribulation must flee to the mountains. So we're going to look at that in just a second. So when our text is talking about flee, run for your life. Yes, there was a partial fulfillment of that, uh, you know, symbolic fulfillment of that, a, a literal fulfillment of that, that parallels the tribulation and people should have fled and they did flee according to Eusebius. But we're talking about what happens during the tribulation primarily for this morning. We're just going to stay focused there. Remember in 70 AD, the Romans kept everybody in place because they paid Jews to say they were prophets. And Josephus says these men then stood up on the temple mount and prophesied, don't run away, don't hide, don't flee Jerusalem because God is going to be bring a great deliverance. This gave time for the Romans to surround the city so they could slaughter all the Jews. That's a happen. Of course, the Antichrist does something different. He makes a firm covenant, a firm covenant, you know, that, you know, let me make this one statement perfectly clear type of covenant. You guys know what that's a reference to. A very clear, clear, firm covenant. We are going to do this for seven years. This puts the Jews at ease so they don't flee when The Antichrist brings his armies around Jerusalem during the tribulation. He's their ally. He's their friend. He's their helper. He's their protector from other nations. And so they're all at ease. And then in the middle of the week, he breaks the covenant, declares himself to be God and says, wipe them out. And that's where we get to our next portion here where we see what those are to do when they see this coming about. Now, turn back to our text in Luke. Luke 21. Sorry about the flip-flop here, but it's the way it is. So we just had an exposition within an exposition, but notice Luke 21, verse 21. Jesus says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
When the Antichrist breaks the covenant, when they see the abomination of desolation, run for your life. Eusebius says that the Christians, Eusebius uh, writes, and he lived from 260 to 340 AD, and he writes that there were a bunch of Christians who, having believed the words of Christ, when Titus did surround Jerusalem in 70 AD, said, hey, this doesn't look good. This is what Jesus was talking about. And then they ran to a city um, called Pella, which is in Perea, and actually escaped the, the judgment of the Romans upon Jerusalem. But now we're talking about the tribulation. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, speaks of the Antichrist saying, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. He will attend to make alterations in times and law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. You're thinking, well, what's that? A time is a year. Times is two years. A half a time is a half a year. Three and a half years. 1260 days. 48 months. In the middle of the week of Daniel's 70th week. Look at Luke chapter uh, 21, verse 21 again. Um, it says, And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. That is, you need to get out of there. Why? Because. As soon as the Antichrist does this, he's just going to start exterminating the Jews. Revelation 12, 6 says, um, The woman, speaking of Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there, there she would be nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years. The last half of the tribulation. And there's a really fun rabbit trail that I cut out here about the fleeing into the wilderness. But we can't go there. It's for another time. Finally, look towards the end of Luke 21, 21. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Where you think, well, why would they do that? Because at that time, if you lived in a country, uh, in the country, and enemies invaded um, your land, you then ran to a fortified city for protection. And so what they're saying here is, listen, when the Antichrist surrounds Jerusalem with armies, don't run to Jerusalem. Flee to the mountains. Stay in the country. Hide. Revelation twelve fourteen goes on to say, but the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman. That is, God assists the woman who represents Israel so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. And there's other texts which talk about how Moab and Edom will be protected um, during this time, which many people feel that the Jews will end up fleeing to the place near uh, Petra, if you know where that is, um, on the other side of the Dead Sea towards the south. Again, a reference to the three and a half years halfway through the tribulation. So now we have kind of a marker. We're in the tribulation. The Antichrist has risen to power. He has now tricked Israel not into fleeing, but actually living in security by saying, I'm going to make a firm covenant with you. I'm not going to break, break it. I would never lie to you. Let me bring my army so the other nations don't bother you. It's all to get them to hold still so he can exterminate them and declare himself to be God and commit the abomination of desolation. Now, we see the reason of Jerusalem's destruction. Look at verse 22 of Luke 21. 
He goes on to say, because these are the days of vengeance. What's that? The days of God's judgment and retribution on Israel for rejecting their Messiah, not just in the first century, but from every century since then for 2000 years. For the most part, the Jews have rejected Christ, though a remnant is saved. For the most part, they have not received their Messiah yet. Now we are in the church age. Remember in the parable of the, the wicked laborers, how, how when the the servants were sent by the owner to collect what was due to the owner. They beat up and killed some of the servants representing the prophets. And then the owner said, I'll send my own son representing Jesus. And then they ended up killing Jesus. And Jesus then, after he interprets the parable, says in the conclusion, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you Jews and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. In other words, this church age will begin when, for the most part, only a very small number of Jews will be saved, but many Gentiles. And here we are as proof the last 2,000 years as proof. However, as Romans chapter 11 states that even though the Jews, which are represented then as the natural olive stock, the branches grafted into the covenant made to Abraham, even though the Jews have been cut off, the branches have been cut off for a time so that the Gentiles, the unnatural uh, branches can be grafted into the Abrahamic covenant, there will come a day that the Jews will be grafted back in. That's during the tribulation. And thus all Israel will be saved. That is all those whom God has chosen who repent and believe will be saved. A third of them, as we saw from Zechariah earlier. God, you say, well, why does God, you know, bring the Gentiles in? Why does he, you know, why, why does, why did he bring us in? Well, to save us, which is kind of nice, don't you think? Um, but also he says in Romans 11 to prov- provoke the Jews to jealousy. I don't know if you've ever talked to a Jew and you're talking about, yeah, we're, we're talking about, you know, your scriptures and your prophets and, you know, your Psalm and, and your King David and we love your Messiah and we can't wait for the fulfillment of Israel. And they're looking at you like, what? They, they, that just doesn't compute. I remember talking to one gal and I said, man, I can't wait for that day when 10 Gentiles grab onto the garment of a Jew and say, let us go to Jerusalem to worship your king. And they looked at me like, really? I mean, they have no concept. They don't, most Jews don't study the Bible. And those who do study usually study the, the Mishnah. They don't, they don't study the word of God. They study the Talmud. They study extra writings. They don't even study their own book. And so a lot of them have no idea what their own book says. And so when they meet Gentiles who are really into their book, man, you know, that's our book. You're studying our book. You're talking about our Messiah and our prophets and our scriptures. Well, why don't you study them? And some have, and some have been saved. Thank God. But during the tribulation, God then will turn his attention back to Jerusalem so that many are saved. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out in the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. Notice they're saved by grace like they've always been saved. As grace and supplications that they will look on me. Notice God is speaking. They will look on me, the Lord, whom they have pierced a reference quoted in the New Testament of Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep 
bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. They will finally come to grips, many of them in the tribulation, that Jesus is the Messiah. We crucified our own Messiah. We've rejected him all these years. And they will be broken and humbled, saved and brought to repentance. You have to realize that though God chose Israel as a nation to bring the law through which the Messiah would come, each individual Jew must still believe in Jesus. They aren't saved just because they're part of the group, the herd. They have to each be saved individually, just like we need to be saved individually, so they can be enjoy the, the promises of the new covenant. So, Thus Jesus says in the middle of Luke 21, verse 22, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. The events of the tribulation must take place. Fourth, the consequences of Jerusalem's destruction. Look at verse 23. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. In other words, when they see the Antichrist commit the abomination of desolation and you have to run for your lives. If you're pregnant, it's hard. If you have little kids, it's difficult. And many will not be able to escape and will be killed. Matthew 24, verses 17 and 18. Mark 13, verses 15 and 16 speak of what we already looked at in Luke chapter 17, verses 31 and 32. Remember the examples Jesus gives in Luke 17 are the days of Noah, when there's this sudden deluge that comes upon them. And he also used the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, a sudden divine judgment which comes upon them. The same thing will happen. They will be in Jerusalem. The Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation. And if they don't run for their lives, judgment will fall on them. God will be using the Antichrist to punish the Jews for the rejection of their own Messiah. Look at the middle of verse 23. For there will be great distress upon the land. The word distress means a calamity forced upon you. Notice it is great. It is severe. The word translated land in the New American Standard Bible is literally the earth in the Greek. It related to the land in 70 AD, but of course relates to the whole world in the tribulation. Look at the end of verse 23. Not only will there be times of great distress in the earth, there will also be times of wrath to this people. The wrath describes the great displeasure and anger really of God towards Jerusalem. And he uses the Antichrist to, to punish his people like he has the pagan nations of the past. Look at verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword. Many will die. We saw earlier in Revelation 12 how the woman of Israel who gives birth to the male child had to flee into the wilderness or be slain. Look at the middle of verse 24 and will be led captive into all nations. Of course, this happened in 70 AD, but it'll happen again. You say, how do you know that? Because in Zechariah chapter 14, verse two, right before it talks about Jesus coming back to earth, it says this, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Speaking of this happening in the tribulation, just as it did in 70 AD, the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished and half of the city exiled. The rest of the people uh, will not be cut off from the city. So in other words, half of the city will be exiled. In other words, they'll be sold as slaves, as prisoners, as bargaining tools. They'll be exiled. The picture is very grim. I mean, if you read the book of Revelation, it is exceedingly grim. 
the entire world, especially Israel, suffering the wrath of God through divine judgments that are coming upon the earth. And the Antichrist, knowing his time is short, is just in a frenzy to just wipe out the Jews and anybody who believes in Christ. Jesus, in a parallel text in Matthew 24, verse 21, said, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And this is always amazing me because you think, well, what about the flood? I mean, the whole world was destroyed with the flood. Only eight people survived. How could it be worse than the flood? Well, only eight people survived the flood, but it's not worse because of the number who are left alive, but because of the number who are, who are killed. The, the earth has a lot more people on it now. So billions will die. During the tribulation, the book of Revelation paints a very bleak picture of this. In Revelation chapter six, verse eight, we read, I looked and behold, an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following him. Authority was given him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Notice how people are being killed here. Sword, that's relatively quick. Famine, slow and painful. Pestilence, slow and painful. Wild beasts, scary, painful. (laughs) Turn to Revelation chapter 8. Let me just show you some of the other things that happen here. It's pretty amazing. Revelation chapter 8. And this is just one part here. I wouldn't recommend this for bedtime reading. At the beginning of the chapter, uh, the lamb who's Jesus breaks a seal and there's this silence and then there are these angels who deliver these judgments that are described as trumpets. And this is what we read starting in Revelation chapter 8 verse 6. Now just imagine being alive during this time. This is the tribulation. And the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and the green grass was burned up. Notice extreme heat. Verse eight, the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown to the sea and a third of the sea had become blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life and died and a third of the ships were destroyed. In other words, some big meteorite or something strikes the ocean, poisons the ocean. A third, that's a lot of dead creatures floating on the surface and wasting away on the beaches. Verse 10, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and many died from the waters because they were made bitter. A fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and a night in the same way. In other words, it becomes dark, which now the temperatures plummet. Verse 13, then I looked and I heard an angel flying in mid heaven saying in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, man, the stuff I just talked about, that's the good stuff. That's the easy stuff. You have to read the rest of the books to figure it out. But in Revelation chapter 9, verse 15, if you look there, it gets a little summation about how many who are killed and the And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. You have a fourth of mankind, a third of mankind, and all the other people killed and all these other judgments. 
I mean, the earth is just being decimated. Christ is coming back. He has spent 2,000 years trying to plead with people, offer grace to people, being rejected by people, and now he is slowly dismantling the world because he's going to come back and reign. Fourth and finally, you have the period of Jerusalem Jerusalem's being trampled underfoot. If you look at verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is the duration from when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. Ever since then, Gentiles have trampled Jerusalem underfoot. And it will continue that way all the way through the tribulation, through the Antichrist reign until Jesus comes back. And then the time of the Gentiles will be over. Christ then will establish his kingdom on earth and he will rule and reign in righteousness forever. So as we look at these things, we're thinking, oh, well, that's a good Christmas message. Well, it's not, but it's the next thing in the text. We'll do Christmas next week, I guess. But as you look at all these things, it just, it strikes you, isn't it? That the tribulation is a terrifying time. You may not get all the references and be able to fit it all together, but there's going to be seven bad years coming For those who don't know Christ, there will be an antichrist. There will be worldwide judgments, global destruction from God upon the earth. Some two thirds to three quarters of the earth's population will be killed before Jesus returns to earth. And you don't want to be alive during that time. I can hardly imagine, and I know people have said this. I can hardly imagine our world continuing on for another thousand years in its condition. I mean, we are going down. Wickedness is increasing. A hatred for God is increasing. And I would hate to think that anyone here this morning might enter into the tribulation if the rapture were to occur. I mean, you need to realize that these things are true. And just like all the prophecies that were fulfilled were fulfilled exactly like God said, these will be filled, fulfilled exactly like God says. You don't want to be here during that time. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ alone to save you, do it today so that you know, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, that you are going to be one of those who is not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being able to look at these many texts which talk about the last seven years of the world's history before Jesus returns. Father, they are scary. And Father, they are severe. Father, I pray that no one here would leave here this morning having not repented and placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. For the rest of us, may we realize the judgment that awaits friends, neighbors, co-workers who don't know you. So may we be faithful to live the truth in front of them, share the gospel with them, and live now in light of eternity. For the days are coming short and every day we are one day closer to seeing you face to face. We're thankful for that. Help us to live to give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.